Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of September 3rd, 2022, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And uh, last week, we noted the ninth anniversary of the Guta chemical attack of August 21st, 2013, in Syria, the first act of really mass genocide by the Bashar Assad regime. And we discussed the perverse historical revisionism concerning this chemical massacre, which is popular on the establishment left here in the United States, such as The Nation magazine. In this episode, we mark another anniversary, the 10th anniversary of a massacre in Syria, this one with conventional weapons, chiefly rifles and artillery, which took place over four days beginning August 20th, 2012. That at Daraya, which really marked a turning point in which the armed resistance led by the Free Syrian Army, and later multiple other factions, became the critical thing in the Syrian struggle. And the peaceful, secular, democratic revolution, which began in March 2011, was increasingly in retreat. And it amazes me how much of the outside world doesn't even know that it happened. I'm going to read an account which appeared on the Counter Vortex Daily Report on August 28th, reprinted from our colleagues at Jurist website out of the University of Pittsburgh. Syria, 2012 Daraya massacre documented. Human rights organization, the Syrian British Consortium, on August 25th, published the findings of its investigation into the massacre of civilians by the Syrian government and allied forces in the town of Daraya a decade ago. The investigation found that in August 2012, government forces killed at least 700 people, including women and children, through indiscriminate shelling and mass executions. Daraya, a town just southwest of Damascus, was one of the most prominent centers of the Syrian uprising against Bashar al-Assad in 2011, and was widely recognized as the front line of nonviolent resistance in the country. The town regularly held mass protests against the regime, and by 2012, government control in the region had significantly diminished. These protests came to their peak during Ramadan, July 20th through August 18th, 2012. On August 19th, the Syrian government and allied militia forces began a wanton campaign of destruction in Daraya. The Free Syrian Army, FSA, then estimated at no more than 800 strong, attempted to resist government forces of at least 10,000 troops, but were quickly overwhelmed 
after surrounding the city. Regime troops established military checkpoints, restricting all movement in or out before cutting off all power and mobile communications. Between August 20th and 24th, regime forces indiscriminately shelled civilians trapped within residential areas and intentionally targeted hospitals, as well as other key infrastructure points with rocket, missile, and mortar fire, as well as direct attacks from helicopters and warplanes. Infantry forces, comprised of the Syrian Air Force Intelligence and the infamous 4th Division and Assad's Republican Guards, entered the town on August 24th, accompanied by Hezbollah and Iranian militia units. They set up additional checkpoints inside the town and positioned snipers on buildings with orders to indiscriminately shoot on sight. These units then attacked residential neighborhoods with tanks and heavy artillery before beginning a door-to-door search. They systematically raided homes in conducting violent searches, intimidating residents, looting personal belongings, detaining men and older adolescent boys, and committing mass extrajudicial executions of men, women, and children across Daraya, quote-unquote. That's from the text of the report. The investigation estimates that at least 700 people were killed in Daraya during this time. The vast majority of those killed were clearly non-combatants. So far, 514 of those killed have been identified by name, including at least 36 women and 63 children. In February 2013, a UN Commission of Inquiry found, quote, reasonable grounds to believe that government forces perpetrated the war crime of murder against hors de combat fighters, meaning fighters not actually engaged in combat, and civilians taking no part in hostilities, including women and children, quote-unquote, during the August 2012 attack on Daraya. However, the UN has never conducted a detailed investigation, and no one has ever been charged with any crimes in connection to the massacre. Okay, again, that was this past week's news concerning those events of 10 years ago, which got all too little coverage. Our account from the Counter Vortex Daily Report of August 28th, and to provide further context and also follow up on what happened to Daraya after this episode, I'm going to turn to some material by my friend and comrade. I will be so presumptuous to say, even though I've never met her in real life, only on the net, Leila al-Shami, Syrian writer and activist, and co-author with Robin Yassin Kassab of the book Burning Country, Syrians in Revolution and War, Pluto Press, 2016. And I'm going to start by reading excerpts from a piece that Leila al-Shami wrote in August 2016, which ran both on her own blog and on Counter Vortex. The Fall of Daraya, From Roses to Evacuation, by Leila al-Shami. 
from the text, four years following its liberation, the predominantly agricultural town of Daraya, strategically located near Syria's capital, has fallen to the regime. Again, this was August 2016. A deal was reached to evacuate the 4,000 to 8,000 civilians remaining from a pre-uprising population of 300,000. The local fighters who defended their town so courageously will go to Idlib province in the north to join the resistance there. Those who leave Daraya leave as heroes. Daraya is an iconic town for Syrian revolutionaries. It has been a center of development of the thought and practice of nonviolent resistance and has inspired civil disobedience across the country. In 2011, when the uprising began, a local coordination committee quickly emerged to organize anti-regime protests. The committee emphasized the importance of nonviolent struggle and handed out leaflets calling for a democratic Syria and for equality between all religious and ethnic groups. As church bells rang in solidarity, protesters marched holding flowers and handed bottles of water to the security forces sent to shoot them. The army and the people are one, they chanted. One of those involved with the local coordination committee was a 26-year-old tailor called Gihath Matar. He earned the nickname Little Gandhi for his commitment to peaceful resistance. Gihath was arrested by security forces on September 6, 2011. A few days later, his mutilated corpse was returned to his family and pregnant wife. In one of his last Facebook posts, Gihath said, quote, we choose nonviolence, not from cowardice or weakness, but out of moral conviction. We don't want to reach victory by having destroyed the country. End quote. The principles of nonviolent resistance, which influenced Araya's youth, had a history in the town. Unusually for Syria, a police state that ruthlessly suppresses independent organization, a group of young men and women, aged between 15 and 25, established the Daraya Youth Group in 1998. They had been studying Quran under the religious scholar Abdul Akram al-Saka. Al-Saka promoted social and political freedom and encouraged free thinking amongst his students. Because of his liberal views, he was controversial among the Syrian ulema, or religious authorities. He called for women to choose their own husbands and argued that women's education was more important than whether or not they wore the veil. He introduced students to the work of Jaudat Said, an Islamist scholar who promoted nonviolent thought and practice through the Quranic traditions as well as the teachings of Gandhi and Martin Luther King. Uh, and I will interject here that um, I was able to determine from Googling that Jaudat Said was known as the 
Circassian Gandhi, as he was a member of Syria's Circassian people, part of a Circassian diaspora that was established after the Circassians were cleansed from their homeland in the Caucasus Mountains by the Russian Empire in the 1850s. Uh, Jaudat Saeed did most of his writing from the 1960s through the 1980s, and he seems to have participated in the early protest in Syria in 2011, but went into exile when the war started, being already 80 years old then, and died this January in Istanbul at the age of 90. Okay, returning to Leila al-Shami's text, where she is discussing Abdul Akram al-Saka, the protege of Jaudat Saeed, who was one of the early organizers of the revolution in Daraya. Al-Saka's work attracted the attention of the authorities, and he was imprisoned in 2003 and 2011. Under his mentorship, the Daraya Youth Group organized actions such as cleaning the streets of their town, boycotting American products, as well as risky campaigns against bribery and corruption. In 2002, they demonstrated against the Israeli invasion of Jenin refugee camp on the West Bank. And in 2003, they organized protests without government permission against the U.S. invasion of Iraq. This activity led to the arrest of 24 members of the group. A few were soon released, but the majority were sentenced to between three and four years in prison. The peaceful protests that began in 2011 were subjected to violent repression. Flowers were met by bullets. Protesters were rounded up en masse and detained. In August 2012, following intense shelling, Syrian army troops stormed the town and committed one of the regime's worst massacres. Some 400 men, women, and children lost their lives in execution-style killings. Those attempting to flee were hunted down and shot. And as we just noted, the number has subsequently been raised to 700 as investigations have continued. The bodies of the dead littered the streets or were thrown into mass graves. In a scene that would be endlessly repeated, some Western commentators sought to exonerate the regime from wrongdoing. The celebrated journalist Robert Fisk visited Daraya shortly after the massacre, embedded with regime troops. He reported that the situation occurred due to Free Syrian Army hostage-taking, and quoted sources saying that the victims were relatives of government employees, implying that the rebels did it. Daraya's local coordination committee issued a strong condemnation of Fisk's report. They had never heard of the hostage-taking story, questioned whether interviewees would be free to speak the truth in the presence of regime soldiers, and criticized Fisk for not meeting with opposition activists. Daraya was liberated by local rebels 
three months later. As the state withdrew, residents set up a local council to run the town's affairs. One of those involved was the anarchist Omar Aziz, who encouraged revolutionary Syrians to organize their communities independently from the Assadist state and work toward advancing a social revolution. Despite enormous challenges, Daraya's local council had remarkable success. It established numerous offices to provide services to civilians. A relief office ran a soup kitchen, which began providing three meals a day, although due to the siege, frequency was reduced. The council also tried to build self-sufficiency, growing beans, spinach, and wheat. A medical office supervised the field hospital to provide for the sick and wounded. A services office was responsible for opening alternative roads when the main ones were inaccessible due to airstrikes or collapsed buildings. The local council also aimed to unify civil and military efforts. Daraya is one of the few communities where the local Free Syrian Army Brigade was part of the council's organizational structure and subject to civil administrative control. And this experiment in local direct democracy or grassroots democracy persisted until the town was taken by the regime a second time in August 2016. And Leila al-Shami concludes, the people of Daraya have paid a heavy price for their dream of freedom. For four years, they defended their autonomy from the Assadist state and kept going despite the bombing Despite the starvation siege, their struggle will continue to be remembered and honored by Syrian revolutionaries everywhere. Once again, from the fall of Daraya, from roses to evacuation, by Leila al-Shami, August 2016. And for further information on Omar Aziz, I direct those interested to another piece by Leila al-Shami. Omar Aziz, Syrian anarchist, his legacy and impact on self-organization in Syria's revolution, published both on the Tahrir ICN website and Counter Vortex in February 2015, which discusses Omar's writings on social media in the early days of the revolution, outlining his vision of local councils taking over and establishing a grassroots democratic parallel government from below, building power up from the ground. This is an obvious parallel to the so-called radical municipalism of Murray Bookchin, the late American anarchist, although I do not know that Aziz had read Bookchin or been aware of his work. Also discussed in the piece is the uh, principle that Omar Aziz advanced of maintaining local civilian control of the Free Syrian Army with the FSA forces accountable and answerable to the base, to the local councils. But Lely concludes, Omar Aziz did not live to see the successes and failures 
of experiments in local self-organization. On November 20th, 2012, he was arrested from his home by the Mukhabarat, the much-feared Internal Intelligence Service. Shortly before his arrest, he said, quote, We are no less than the Paris Commune workers. They resisted for 70 days, and we are still going on for a year and a half. End quote. Aziz was held in an intelligence detention cell of four by four meters, which was shared with 85 other people. This likely contributed to the deterioration of his already weak health. He was later transferred to Adra Prison, where he died from heart complications in February 2013, a day before his 64th birthday. Omar Aziz's name may never be widely known, but he deserves recognition as a leading contemporary figure in the development of anarchist thought and practice. The experiment in grassroots revolutionary organization that he inspired provide insight and lessons in anarchist organizing for future revolutions across the globe. So wrote Leila Al-Shami in February 2015. Now, after that, after the fall of Daraya in August 2016, many of the residents were evacuated to Idlib province in the north, which remained in rebel hands. And for a while, the remnants of this grassroots democratic system, based on local councils, survived in towns in Idlib, including the eponymous provincial capital. But in 2018, the Nusra Front, an extremist Islamist faction, then being reorganized as a coalition of like-minded factions, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, or HTS, began to take over Idlib province and started to terrorize and dismantle the grassroots democratic resistance. November 23rd, 2018, saw the killing by unknown gunmen of prominent opposition activist and radio producer Rayed Faris in the town of Kafranbel. His community station, Radio Fresh, had continued to broadcast in defiance of threats from militants linked to the Nusra Front slash HTS. In late 2019, the grassroots democratic resistance staged a popular uprising in Idlib, chiefly nonviolent, against the self-imposed HTS authorities. You can read about this in yet another piece by Leila Al-Shami. Idlib resists. Syrian resistance stands up again, this time against Islamist militia, which ran both on her blog and on Counter Vortex in November 2019. But the uprising was put down by HTS, and it is uncertain as to the degree to which the grassroots democratic resistance still exists. Perhaps in some areas of neighboring Aleppo province, which are occupied by Turkey, which incidentally saw protest against the Turkish occupation after the Erdogan government broached reconciliation 
with the Bashar Assad regime. And this virtually forgotten, quite recent history is what makes the consensus position of the American left on Syria so sickening. Nobody gave any support in the outside world to the secular pro-democratic resistance as they were massacred by the regime. So the jihadists came in and offered support to people facing genocide and thereby established a foothold. And now all of the anti-war hypocrites squawk about how the rebels are all jihadists. They helped create this reality. They helped to bring this reality about beyond belief. And it is really a minority of a minority of a minority on the American left that (laughs) really has a good position on Syria. The consensus position of the establishment left in the United States and the West, as we have amply documented, is pro-dictatorship. Then there's the minority, mostly on the anarchist left, that at least supports the revolutionary movement of the Rojava Kurds in their northeastern enclave of Syria because they are explicitly anarchist-influenced and their leadership have famously read Bookchin. But even this minority of anarchist dissidents on the American left has been very slow to support the general Arab-led Syrian revolution, even though it, too, is anarchist-influenced, or at least was in its inception. And while these gringo anarchist types have all heard of Murray Bookchin, they've never heard of Omar Aziz. And even if they support the Rojava revolution, they've just sort of swallowed the consensus position of the establishment left on the general Arab-led Syrian revolution. Then there's the smaller minority that supports the general Arab-led Syrian revolution, but has been slow to support the Rojava Kurds because of the way the Arabs and Kurds have been pitted against each other by great power manipulations, as we have discussed before. Then there's the smaller minority still, a minority of which I sometimes feel I am the only one (laughs) who support both the general Arab-led Syrian revolution and the Kurdish-led Rojava revolution, in spite of the compromises that both have had to make in the face of genocidal enemies, principally the Assad regime in the case of the Arabs and ISIS in the case of the Kurds due to reasons of geography. And in spite of the manipulation of the great powers, including the United States, Russia, and Turkey that have exploited the situation and inflamed the ethnic tensions on the ground. But the big majority of the Western left, the mainstream of the left, that which gets its information or disinformation, as the case may be, 
from The Nation magazine and Democracy Now! and so on, don't even know that the Daria massacre happened or that the grassroots democratic resistance existed or exists. And uh, I will close by pointing out that Leila Alshami, whose writings we have read from extensively on this podcast, actually had an op-ed in the New York Times on August 31st about the efforts by the genocidal dictatorship of Bashar Assad to normalize itself in terms of world opinion and diplomacy, entitled, Bashar Assad has a Syria he'd like the world to see. Uh, Layla begins by noting that the new Jackie Chan movie about a Chinese commando mission in Yemen is being filmed in Syria, particularly in Hajar al-Aswad, a southern suburb of Damascus, that was largely destroyed and cleansed of its inhabitants when the regime seized it back from the rebels some four years ago. A maddening case of reality being replaced by simulacrum with an actual recent war zone, which was cleansed of its civilian inhabitants, now serving as a movie set for a film about a different war, which glorifies the government of one of the great powers, China, that backed the regime that cleansed the enclave. Okay, that's all a little too postmodern for me, thanks. So uh, big ups to the New York Times for running this piece by my friend Leila Alshami. And as far as I'm concerned, this is another example of the dreaded MSM, mainstream media, doing what the so-called alternative media, like The Nation magazine, should be doing. We're 100% through the looking glass. And on the last podcast, you know, I blasted the nation for their warped pro-dictatorship Syria coverage. Well, I should note that a search of their website does reveal two stories that at least mention Daraya and what happened there, both written by Syrians and one by Humam Maudamami in December 2017 as part of a special program in which they were running reports from citizen journalists depicting daily life in war zones. But neither of these stories are primarily about the Daraya massacre. And again, this is the nation's little trick of once in a rare while having a guest writer, possibly even a Syrian, write something taking a revolutionary position on Syria in a nod to even-handedness, but their big stars, their regulars over the years, all take a completely reactionary pro-dictatorship position, such as the ones we called out on the last podcast, David Bromwich, James Carden, Phyllis Bennis, Bob Dreyfus, the late Eminence Grease, Stephen F. Cohen, etc., So this is how Syria's peaceful, secular, democratic revolution was drowned in blood, and how readers of The Nation magazine don't even know that it happened. Remember Daraya.
Assad to The Hague. This has been Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. Join The Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.